You are listening to NTC Messina's podcast, where our desire as the family of God is to simply know God, love one another, and make disciples. I'm going to kind of pick up. Um, we've been doing a series, if you haven't been with us, on Genesis to Revelation. We're calling it Garden to City. We started in a garden as humanity. We're ending up in a city in Revelation, and we read some of that in that very first week. And we're kind of making our way through Genesis, just hitting big themes of what does it look like for us to be the image bearers of God, for us to be humanity, who has God designed us to be, where are our constant faults and cycles, and how do we kind of pay attention to those through the Bible, and then how does God want us, honestly, to be transformed to see what happens in Revelation. So here we are, we're in Genesis, I ended in Genesis 9 I think it was last week. Sometimes the weeks roll together. Has that ever happened to you? I don't even, not sure what was last week at this point. But Genesis 9, I ended uh, a little bit, and I skipped a story at the end of Genesis 9 that I just want to mention because it's a fun story, okay? If you know the story at the end of Genesis 9, it includes drunkenness, nakedness, and uh, some interesting situations. You're not laughing. This is church. You can laugh. All right, so let me just, let's just get to the point on this. I want to make a point out of this story. It is a weird story, but it's in the Bible, and it's there because it's important. So here we are. Noah and his family have been on the ark. They've actually been on the ark. There's now dry land, but they haven't left the ark, and God actually asks them, okay, now you should leave. And so they leave, and they're now on dry land, and of course, Noah does, it says Noah does like the most important thing, and he plants a vineyard because they like their wine. And we get into this story, and I'm not going to read through the whole scriptures here, but basically what happens is Noah gets drunk one night, and he's naked and drunk. First reason why you shouldn't drink to the point of drunkenness. He's, he ends up being naked in his tent, and his sons find him this way. And they realize, oh my gosh, this is kind of a shameful moment for our dad, well, there's, there's this kind of weird situation that takes place where one of the sons, it says, looks on his dad. Whereas the other two sons, they grab a cloak and they, it actually says they back into the tent to cover their dad up. And it's this weird storyline. You're like, why is this here? Why are we hearing a story about Noah being drunk in the Bible, being naked in his tent, and his two sons covering him up? And it goes on to talk about literally this curse that ends up over the one son because he looked on his dad. It was like he ridiculed him, whereas the other two sons chose this way of covering him up. And I like to point out this story because one of the very first questions that's posed in the Bible, if you remember from probably the second sermon, was when Cain is talking to God and what does he say to God? Does anybody remember? Am I my brother's keeper. And we see this situation, and it's kind of this rhetorical question because Cain thinks he knows the answer. Cain thinks he's not his brother's keeper. But yet what we're going to find out through all of scriptures is that we are called to be our brother's keeper. And when I just say brother's keeper, it means we're called to care about. And actually, when you look at that word keeper, it actually talks about covering, taking care of. And then we see this story where these two sons cover their dad in some of his shameful moments. 
And I want to say, even in this story, it's an answer to that question. Are we our brother's keeper? Are we supposed to care and cover for one another? Absolutely. Now, cover doesn't mean like, you know, lie and do all these sorts of things to cover up for someone. But when we see a situation where someone has fallen or done something, the idea here is not to act like Ham does in the situation and ridicule and look upon and then do nothing about it is part of what happens with Ham. He does nothing. But the two sons decide, we're going to help dad. And they real, it's this idea where they realize the answer, yeah, we are called to care for one another. And so even though it's a weird story, I always like to mention it because it, it really starts to answer this question. Are we called to be our brother's keeper? Are we called to be our sister's keeper? Are we called to be one another's keeper? Yes, we are. As Christians, as humans in this world, we are called to care for one another. The other part of this story that I love is that even in the midst of what looks like just a stupid decision on Noah's part, God cares to bless Noah. So listen, have you made stupid decisions in your life? Everyone can raise their hand. God still wants to bless you. He still wants to cover you and take care of you. And we see it even in the midst. I mean, wait till, if you start reading through the whole Bible, you will find out that every hero of the Bible made some of the dumbest choices of all humanity. But yet God uses them and blesses them and, and puts favor on their lives, even in the midst of that. And I, and I think one of the big things, the reason for that, especially for Noah, is because when God looks at our lives, he doesn't always just see our external actions because honestly, sometimes our external actions don't even line up with our heart's intentions. But he looks at the person's heart and that's how he ends up making decisions, I think, over our lives. And we look at Noah's life, and what we kind of focused on the last sermon was his obedience. It says that Noah did everything as God commanded him. And I think God's blessing Noah, regardless of this weird story and silly situation. We are our brother's keeper. All right, let's move on. I didn't get to say that last time. I wanted to say it today. So here we are, Genesis 10. We're going to kind of run through Genesis 10, 11, and 12. We're not going to read all the scriptures today, but I'm going to hit a few main subjects and kind of land on one spot. So Genesis 10 is mostly, I'm just going to say what it is, it's another lineage chapter. And the reason that these lineage chapters are in there, there's one main point always that I would say, is God cares about family. God cares about our heritage and our lineage. And there's a part that you see throughout the Bible that, you know, being the people of God equates really to family. Which is why often when, when you come here on a service, I, I invite people to come into the family of God, not to come to church. Because the family of God is what God is actually drawing people back to. And so we see this lineage play out. Of course, the lineage is also there because uh, the Bible is using this as a historical reference. The Jews are using this as a historical reference of understanding where people's lineage actually came from. So this was just historical accuracy for the Jews. So we're going to get to chapter 11. And some of you know this story. Maybe some of you don't. This is the Tower of Babel. And so I want to read just kind of the first section of the Tower of Babel story. And we're going to hit a few thoughts out of that. So verse 1, chapter 11, here we go. At one time, all the people of the world spoke the same language. 
and used the same words. As the people migrated to the east, they found a plain in the land of Babylonia and settled there. They began saying to each other, let's make bricks and harden them with fire. In this region, bricks were used instead of stone, and tar was used for mortar. Then they said, come, let's build a great city for ourselves with a tower that reaches into the sky. This will make us famous and keep us from being scattered all over the world. I want to stop for a second. So an interesting thing takes place here. It says everybody speaks the same language. They're talking to one another. They decide. And there's this language that happens that I think really matters to even why this kind of odd story takes place in the scripture where, where God basically confuses them with different languages so they can't get along as easy. Which I'm not, you know, if you look at that just on the surface, you're like, why would he do that? But part of it is because of what they said right here in these first few scriptures. So this is, if we, and we're going to compare this back to Genesis 1. If you look at it, it says this. They said, come, let's build a great city for ourselves. You see, immediately, they're already back in the same place that Adam and Eve had chosen to go. So you see, Adam and Eve, they get placed in this garden, and they get given all the raw materials of the world, and, and God says here, to, you know, take these things, rule, reign, and govern it, shape the world. You know, I want you to be fruitful and multiply. And so he's given us this mandate over the world, but it was not meant for the glorification of man. And what we see here is now they're doing the same thing because Adam and Eve then end up outside the garden and when they ate that apple or whatever the fruit really was, it's kind of this idea of like saying, okay, God, we know what you said to do, but we're going to kind of do it our own way. And when they're going to build this great city and it says we're going to make this great city for ourselves and then the next scripture it says this, this will make us famous and keep us from being scattered all over the world. You see, they had turned their focus from God and it had become just entirely on them. Instead of making a great city for themselves with God in the midst of this, instead of you know, having God in the midst of all the things that they were called to do in the world, they decided they wanted to make it just about them. And so this great city was going to be about them and the great city was meant to make them famous. And I look at this and I... I just am reminded, don't we fall into the same trap still today? That most of the time, what we're building is for ourselves. Most of the time, what we're building is meant to make us look good. And so we spend, and now listen, I am number one for this when it comes to my home. I love my home. And so I'm always thinking about what my house looks like and whether it looks good when you drive by or if my neighbors are happy with the way I'm keeping it. No joke. I'm always thinking about that. And so it's easy to fall into this trap to say, are we building something just for ourselves, just so the world can look at us and say, wow, good job, Greg? Or are we building something else? Are we putting our lives into something else that isn't just about us? Isn't Now listen, you can love your house. It's not wrong. But are we putting our lives into something else that isn't just building a kingdom that's about us, but building a kingdom that's actually about everyone else and, of course, about Christ? 
And I think this is why we see this Tower of Babel story where God sees, wow, they've, they've missed the point again. You're going to see this a lot in Scripture. And they're about to build this great city. And then even one of the things is the idea is they don't want to go anywhere else. It says, then we won't have to be scattered throughout the world. But yet, God wants us to be fruitful and multiply. He says, fill the earth. And so this next scripture says, but the Lord came down to look at the city and the tower the people were building. Look, he said, the people are united and they all speak the same language. After this, nothing they set out to do will be impossible for them. This is huge. I always think about this scripture when I'm watching. I, I, I'm, a, I'm a news guy. I love to know what's happening in the world, but especially specifically I love like innovation and new new creative things so I'm like I love watching guys like Elon Musk all those things because I just want to know what are these people dreaming up and then what are they building and when I read scripture like this you know I think sometimes we we almost confine it to you know everything that's created is God's design right but this shows you right now that's not true we are creative people given creative nature and creative abilities, but creative doesn't mean you're controlled. So creative abilities don't always mean you're going to be creating what God wants you to create. We see it in this story. They're creating a tower in a city that God's like, wait a second, that's not what I wanted. But I look in the world and there's this reality. God gives us this incredible gift of creativity in the world, but we can choose to use it for our own kingdom or we can choose to use it for his kingdom. And even to the point where God says, look, nothing will be impossible for them. That's an amazing, I, I can't tell if it's a compliment or a, a jab at this moment. But there's this place where humanity was given this creativity and there's really nothing outside of our ability when, we, when we're united. But actually in this situation and when man has fallen or when humanity has fallen away from following God's ways and doing it God's you know, ways in our life and following what he wants us to do, then actually this ability to do anything that's possible or make anything possible is actually dangerous. And I think we can look around the world and see that. I'm pretty sure God doesn't like the idea that we created nuclear weapons. Now, you can argue that point all day long about why we created them and the cost-benefit analysis, but I'm guessing at the beginning of creation, God wasn't like, you know what would be great? An atomic bomb. A nuclear missile. You know, a 100-megaton nuclear, nuclear bomb isn't big enough. How about a 1,000-megaton? Have you read about these things? I don't know if anybody else gets weird into creepy stuff like that, but I have. A thousand megaton bomb, like, that literally exists. That could destroy over 25 square miles vaporized. I don't think God's going, wow, great job, guys. So this creativity can actually be used for the wrong things. And God comes and he looks at this city and this tower and he realizes, wow, they're united in their mind and in their words, and so they're going to be able to do anything they want. And I'm pretty sure God, with good foresight... <laughs> can see that they're probably going to create some things they should not ever create. And so this Babel story happens, right? Babel just means confusion. As God, it says he 
gave them different languages and they couldn't talk to each other anymore. And so they had to split up and spread out because they had, I'm, I'm guessing that they weren't all literally single languages, but maybe a group had one language and they had to go live, you know, somewhere by themselves and they created their own society. So we see this kind of spreading out of humanity, but I, I want to take the point from this story that it's easy for us. Yes, God's given us a creative gift in this world, but we always have the choice. Are we going to build something for our kingdom or are we going to build something for his kingdom? Because if we're building something for his kingdom, I think the, there really is no end to the possibilities. I think I said it before in a message. I think this is why Christians should be the most creative people in the world. That we shouldn't be leaving up the dreaming and the, and the wild ideas and the incredible creativity to people who don't even know Christ. We should be dreaming up the most incredible innovations in this world because God has given us an incredible creative mind and the Holy Spirit. But are we going to build his kingdom or are we going to build ours? So you see this story kind of take place and, and they get spread out. Then we see another um, lineage kind of listed from chapter from verse 10 down to verse 26. And here we get to in a very important family in the Bible. And I'm going to just kind of finish with 11 and, and part of 12, and we're going to talk about Abram. So here we see the beginning of Abram. Abram, if you don't know, becomes Abraham. God changes his name. He just adds the letter. And it changes his name quite a bit for a reason. But we see Abram into the picture here. And at the end of that lineage, lineage, we see, you know, it says when Terah was 70 years old, he had become the father of Abram, Nahor, maybe if that's how you say it, and Haran. And then we get to verse 27, and we see this account of his family. You see account of Abram. But we're going to jump now. So we see Abram gets married uh, to Sarah. And we're going to jump now down to... Chapter 12, verse 1, and we're going to pick up there. So here we are. Um, I just want to say, chapters 1 through 11 in Genesis are considered uh, very separate in its, in, in its reasoning for the rest of the chapters in the Bible. So chapters 1 through 11 were written most likely, and then I'm just saying this is a most likely, people don't really know, by Moses. Chapters 1 through 11 were written by, Mo if they were written by Moses, means that they were inspired and slash a verbal traditional history handed down, okay? So Moses is writing Genesis 1, 2, all the way through 11 from verbal Jewish tradition and from inspiration from God. So we see this is, it's kind of looked at differently, but then when we get to uh, 12 through the rest, what we're going to start to see is this is Jewish lineage history that is tracked quite, quite accurately, and it's different, okay? So 12, we're picking up in Abraham's, or Abram's life. He's not Abraham yet. And we're going to start to see the promises of God that are spoken out. We saw this covenant that was spoken over Noah, right? I, I brought up that was the first time that covenant, the word, was used in the Bible. But what we're going to really start to see is the promises of God spoken over Abraham and over his family, the descendants of the earth. Of course, we see the Israelites come out of that and the Hebrews and, you know, all the way to the church. And obviously, if you were around in the 90s or 80s, you sang Father Abraham, right? Anybody can sing that now? Yeah, I knew the Smiths would do it. <laughs> um, had many sons. You were one of them. Okay, anyway. Anyway, so here we are, verse 1, chapter 12. It says, The Lord had said to Abram, Leave your native country, your relatives, 
your father's family, and go to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and make you famous, and you will be a blessing to others. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who treat you with contempt, and all the families on the earth will be blessed through you. I want to stop here. Does this verse sound familiar to something we just read? The beginning of the Tower of Babel story. What did they say? Come, let's build a great city for ourselves with a tower. This will make us famous and keep us from being scattered around the world. You see that there's some similar language here, yet God then comes to a different, first God goes to this group of people and he confuses them so they can't be famous and they can't build themselves a great city. But then he comes to Abram and he says, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make you famous. Wait a second, God. I thought you didn't want people being famous. I didn't think you wanted people building some great city. But yet he comes to Abram and he says the exact opposite that he didn't want the people in the Tower of Babel story doing. He says, I'm going to make you a great nation and I'm going to make you famous. But the caveat is in here. And it says this, and you will be a blessing to others. All the families on earth will be blessed through you. I love this scripture. I think this is one of the most important scriptures in all of the Bible. Because right from the beginning of the covenant with God of what it looks like with Abraham, we see this blessing and favor over him, but it is not for Abram's sake alone. It says, for all the families of the earth. You want to know what it doesn't say? It doesn't say nation in that sentence. Now he says, I'm going to make you into a great nation, but it was never actually even just about the Israelites. You see, even in the Bible, the Israelites got confused and they became exclusive and they thought it was just about them. They were a people group that God was using to show the world how everyone was supposed to be. It's the same idea with the church. You see, God has a people group now, it's called his church, and he's using us, or supposedly supposed to be using us, to show the world this is what humanity is supposed to look like. But yet we've kind of fallen easily into the same track as the Israelites and the Hebrews, Hebrews, and we've made it this exclusive thing, and people look at us and they don't even want to be a part of us because we've made it exclusive like you can't fit. The Israelites did the same thing, but yet in this scripture, right from the beginning of the promise with Abraham, he says all the families on the earth will be blessed. That's pretty amazing. I love this too because family is universal. It's not nation. It's not just America. It's not just Israel. It's not just wherever we're from or whatever flag we hang on on a pole somewhere. It's not, where, it's not just where our Pledge of Allegiance lies in those ways, but literally God looks down on the earth and instead of seeing all of the lines that we've created because of geography, he looks at families. And he says, I want to bless families. I think it's why families are probably the most attacked thing in the world. You see, we, we, we look and sometimes think, oh, geez, Satan, he's attacking America. I'm not sure he cares that much. I think he's just attacking what's within America that makes sense, families. 
He's doing the same thing in every other country around the world because at the end of the day, if he can break down family and what we understand as family, and I'm listen, family, I'm not just talking about this nuclear sense of family, a husband, a wife, and children. Family literally is this idea of connected humanity who loves and cares and takes care of one another. It doesn't have to be blood. You don't have to sign papers for it. You can just be family because you chose to act that way. Family is what God is bringing together to show the world what it means to love one another as he has loved us. This great commandment he leaves us with. And right back, if we go all the way back here to the beginning with Abram, all the families on earth will be blessed through you. That's an amazing, amazing promise over Abram's life. All the families on the earth. So let's go on. So it says, so Abram departed as the Lord had instructed and Lot went with him. So Lot's his brother, if you don't know that. Abram was 75 years old when he left Haran. So at 75, I, I just like, let, let's put this in real context. Now I know they live to be old. But he's 75 and God whispers to you, go to a place that I will show you. What are you gonna do? I'd go, what's the place? Well, I'll show you. But I think you can show me now. <laughs> like, is it on Zillow? Is it for sale? <laughs> like, I, I, I would have a million questions to this statement from God. I would not want to just fly by it. But yet we see this obedience again in Abram's life. He just says, go to the land that I'll show you. It says, so Abram departed as the Lord had instructed he took his wife, Sarah, his nephew, Lot, or sorry, it's his nephew, not his brother, and all his wealth, his livestock, and all the people he had taken into his household. And he headed for the land of Canaan. When they arrived in Canaan, Abram traveled through the land as far as Shechem. There he set up camp beside the Oak of Morah, and at the time the area was inhabited by Canaanites. So here he's just leaving. He's going, hopefully, to a place that God is going to show him, but he doesn't have great instructions on that, but he's taking his whole family. Now listen, you know, I don't know about you guys, but family trips are a little, like, nerve-wracking for me. Are they for you? When you had little kids, maybe? I have five little ones. We've gone on one trip ever. Um, previous to that, the only other place that we've taken all our kids, I know we have a special situation with our kids, but the only other place that all of our kids had, had gone to previous to just a year ago was my parents' house, and they lived 10 minutes away. We've now been able to go to Jessica's parents' house, and they live two minutes away. But my brother had been asking us, hey, come to Ohio and visit us. And I was like, I don't want to. Like, I like you, but I, oh, with everyone? It was this terrifying notion, and that's with seven people. Now, that's what I think we're kind of thinking of when I think, oh, they packed up their family and went on a road trip. No. They packed up. Actually, the idea is probably close to 70 to 80 people. They created a caravan, and they started on their way with all their belongings and all of their, you know, animals and everything that they own. I can't even imagine that. And they didn't even know where they were going. I mean, how many times did the kids go, are we there yet? I mean, in Ohio, at least I know when we're about to get there. How many years did, did Abram have to say, I don't know. Ask God. No. Um, so we see this story playing out in this incredible obedience from Abram, and he gets to this land, the Canaanites, but it's inhabited by others. 
And it says, Then the Lord appeared to Abram in verse 7 and said, I will give this land to your descendants. And Abram built an altar there and dedicated it to the Lord who had appeared to him. After that, Abram traveled south and set up camp in the hill country. With Bethel to the west and Ai to the east, there he built another altar and dedicated it to the Lord. And he worshiped the Lord. Then Abram continued traveling south by stages towards Nehoi. I want to stop. I'm probably not even going to go on many further than this today. So we see this story. We see this, you know, incredible kind of faith-filled story where God speaks to Abraham, tells him to go. We don't even know what that looks like. You know, we don't know if God appeared to Abram before that. But we see that God appeared to him in this moment where he builds this altar. But he gets this word from God and he ventures out with his whole family, all his belongings, everything that identified him with his father's house and all those things. And he goes on this new journey and he's waiting to hear from God. And then he gets to this place, this Canaanite place that's filled with the Canaanites. And God appears to him and said, this is the land that I'm going to give you. Now, what's interesting is, it's somebody else's already. Now, I'm not sure, and we don't see lots of what happens within Abram's mind in these moments, but I would wonder, was he disillusioned at all? Was he like, okay, well, what do I do now? And it says he builds this altar there, and, and there's this description that takes place and it's just these two descriptions of these two places where he builds, he sets up camp and he builds an altar. It says, with Bethel to the west and Ai to the east, it says he built an altar there and dedicated to the Lord and worshiped the Lord. So the word Bethel, this city Bethel, it means house of God. If you've ever been to, there's lots of churches named out there Bethel. And the reason is because that's what it means. It's this, it just means house of God. And it says that the house of God is here you know, on the, on the west side of him. But then on the other side of him is this other city, and it's called Ai. And if you look at the meaning of Ai, it means city of ruin. And I've always appreciated this little story and some of the kind of symbolic aspect of what's taking place here. You, you've got this word from God that's spoken to Abram. And he has this faith to kind of venture out in it. And he gets to this place, but it's not maybe exactly what he expected. It's not all set up and ready and waiting for him. And he's there in this kind of middle place. He's he got this city of ruins on his, on his east side. And he's got this house of God on his left side. But he's kind of in the middle. And whenever I've read this story, I think, man, don't we all end up living in that middle space sometimes? Like we know what God has for us and there's this place that, this house place where he's, you know, he, he dwells and what, what all the things that represent God and all the things that he has for us, it's kind of over here on this side. But then if we look to the other side of our lives, often we've left a city of ruins, haven't we? And there's this city that kind of represents all that's the opposite of God and this place in our life that's not what he designed for us in this, this place that's of ruins. And, and hopefully mo most of us in this room are watching us. We've left kind of a city of ruins. We don't want to live there anymore. But we're not quite over here where we know God is calling us to, but we're in this middle place. And what we're going to find even through all the scriptures, and honestly, I'll just be honest, where we're at in humanity and the history of the world is we're in the middle place. We know what God's calling us to. We read Revelation 22 at the beginning, uh, 21 at the beginning of 
this series, and we see this city of God that's going to come at some point, and we see this thing that says it comes down from the heavens, and then we look back, and we can kind of see maybe even the ruins of our life, or the ruins of a life lived that isn't of God, or we even see the world in ruins in certain ways, but yet here we are knowing what God has for us, seeing what we left, but we're in this middle place. And I think that sometimes living in this middle place, what we're going to find out about Abraham's life is he wanders for a very long time. And this becomes a very familiar thing with the people of God. Abraham wanders for years. He goes kind of from place to place. He ends up in Egypt. The next story is, you know, if you thought the drunk naked story with Noah is weird, the next story is even weirder with Abraham convincing Pharaoh that his wife is his sister and then letting her go be married to him. That's a weird one. Like all these stories happen around Abram's life and he wanders around. We get to the Israelites and we see them wander around for 40 years. Then even when they get into the promised land, they spend decades and decades you know, trying to clear, clear it to become the promised land God's called them. We see this constant wandering in this middle place between what God calls us to and what we've left that was ruins. And I think that sometimes as Christians, I know for me specifically, Living in that middle place can be very frustrating. In fact, it's where I get the most disillusioned. It's like I know what I can see God has. I know what I don't want to go back to. But this limbo place just kind of sucks at times. I feel like I get lost here. I feel like I lose sight of God sometimes. I feel like maybe he's forgotten me in this place. And yeah, he's spoken this word, but it doesn't fully make sense because I can't see how it's going to work out. But yet I feel caught in the middle. And, and maybe you've experienced God enough. And I've had people say this to me. Even when my most disillusioned moments, I just say, well, where am I going to go? I'm not going back to, this, to AI. I'm not going to the city of ruins again. I'm not sure how I'm ever going to make it to that house of God, but I guess I just got to stay here and wait and figure this out. And there's this place where Christianity, I think, we, we get disillusioned, but realizing that something happens in this middle place that's imperative for us. It's what we're going to talk about over the next couple weeks. We're going to see it in Abraham's life. God wants to work with us in the midst of this, and there's only one response that works well here. Because I think that most of us would be in this place in some stage in our life right now, there are things happening that make us feel like we're right caught in the middle. And if, if I ever do anything when it comes to counseling, this is what people, they ask, what, what am I supposed to do here? I don't know what to do. I don't see God. I don't hear him. I'm not sure what I'm supposed to be doing. And I always think of this story, and I see his response, and I think this is the response we're supposed to have when we're in the middle of what God's promised us in life and the place that we've left. And this is what it says he does. It says, he built an altar, dedicated it to the Lord, and he worshiped him. This is, this is what we can do. You know, I, I've said this before, I'm sure, in many sermons. That I think one of the greatest things we can do on this side of heaven is worship God in the midst of pain, in the midst of disillusionment, in the midst of not understanding. Because when we get to heaven, when we are actually face-to-face -face with God, we'll, we'll worship him still, but it won't be because we're 
you know, we won't have this disillusionment. We won't have the pain of life. We won't have all the misunderstandings. We'll be there now with him and we'll probably have a lot better view of what really is going on. And so there's this place that in the midst of not understanding, if we can worship him, God can do something incredible. This is kind of what I want to leave with us today, that no matter where you're at in your journey from that place of ruins, man, if you're in that place of ruins, guess what? You can leave. If you're in a place in your life where it looks like a city of ruins and you just want something else, you know that God has something else, maybe you don't even know how to picture what that is. I'm telling you, today you can make a choice to start your journey out of a city of ruins and into a place of new life. But when we find ourselves in the middle, I think this is the best response that we can do is worship God. It says build an altar there. Now listen, we don't build altars, stones. I know some friends of mine that literally have done this before. They've stacked some stones and it's just as this idea of like, God, I want to honor you in the place of my life right now and I'm going to worship you no matter how I feel. I think God does something incredible in that moment. Can we stand this morning? Where are you at in between Bethel and AI today? What's God want to do in you in this moment? If your answer is you're not sure, that's okay. We're going to do communion in just a moment. Justin's going to come up and do communion, and, and we're going to worship. And I would say this. Let God just recenter your heart, even in the midst of being in the in-between place, but set your eyes where he's calling you and worship him anyway. I want to pray right now because I believe God wants to kind of encourage some of us. I think he wants to lift some of us up, even in the midst of a place where maybe we've suffered disillusionment and say, listen, you're not just in a middle place by yourself. I haven't forgotten you. I haven't lost sight of you. But there is something I want to do in you in this moment. So God, I just ask right now that you would speak clearly into every heart in this room, every heart online, God. God, even as we come to take communion together today, God, I ask right now that you would do something in our heart to recenter our eyes on you. God, that we wouldn't get stuck just in this place of living in between and wondering if you're still there and wondering if you see us, God. And God, I pray even now for people who are tempted to maybe go back to what they've known, God, that they would remember that's just a city of ruins. You don't want to go back there. But God, that our eyes would be lifted to you today that we would run towards you today. God, even no matter how long that, that middle place lasts, Father, even as we saw the Israelites last 40 years, and for Abraham, even longer than that, that, God, we would keep our eyes on you and what you're calling us to do. In Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to NTC Messina's podcast. We hope you join us next week and have a blessed day.